0: This Lord's day, take your copy of God's word. Turn with me now to the book of Second Peter. Second Peter, chapter one, verses 19 through 21. We continue our journey through this great book of Holy Scripture. Second Peter 1, verse 19. Hear the word of the living God. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed is a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for a prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the living God, and we say, Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated and let's pray together. Now, Lord, it is in the secret place, the shadow of under your wings, that we gather as your people to be fed and nourished by your word. We thank you that this morning as we sit here in this comfortable worship center, that there are people all across this globe. Some in places like this, others in caves, others hiding for fear of persecution, and yet we join with them as the word will go forth every hour this Lord's Day. We praise you for this. We thank you for your word, your infallible, inerrant voice to your people, and we pray that as we sit beneath the teaching of it, you would encourage our souls that the preaching of the word of Christ would be his words to his people. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the Bible? That's our question this morning. Boys and girls, it's a simple question. You may say, well, that Bible is that thing that we read from in family worship each day. That Bible is the thing that one of our preachers preaches from every Sunday. Some of you may remember your catechism, and you may say that the Bible is the word of God written by men, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And in all those things, you would be right. But I want us to see from the scripture itself what the Bible is. Before we do that, Peter has been making an argument. We need to remember what that argument is. It goes something like this. In the first few verses of 2 Peter, he says, we have a great and glorious and precious faith. That faith is the same faith of the apostles. That faith comes with precious promises that we rest in Christ, that it is by his righteousness that we are God's people. And that as we live on this earth waiting for him to return, we are to grow in our faith by adding certain qualities to it. And that as we live in this life, these promises include the promise of the return of Christ, There will be some who will say that you and that I am following myths, fables, silly children's stories when we place all of our hope in the return of a Messiah who died on the cross 2,000 years ago. And Peter would say, we, the apostles who wrote these things down, did not follow cunningly devised fables. That this word of Christ's return is everything because we base our lives on it. So as we saw last week, he reminds us that he was an eyewitness of the glory of the Son of God, the glory of the Son who is coming to reign over all things, visibly, tangibly, and for all time. And he moves from that discussion to verse 19 where he says, we have the prophetic word confirmed. In other words, the promise of the prophets of old has been confirmed. and We pass that on to you. But what is the prophetic word? What is it? What is the scripture? Peter gives us a definition. And it's to that definition this morning that we look. Now remember, what's come before our passage? Well, the call to remember the glorious reality of Christ and his coming. What comes after our passage? An entire chapter where false teachers who seem to want to destruct and deconstruct this promise of Christ's coming will soon come upon the churches. It happened in Peter's day, and it's happened in ours. Brothers and sisters, just get in your car and drive across the peninsula. You will find many church buildings. And in many of those buildings today, a so-called minister will stand and give perhaps 10 or 15 minutes of a teaching, and it will be a, a moral lesson, perhaps true, half true, or not true at all, if you press that congregation as to whether Christ will return, and they're living in line with that, they would probably, almost to a man, say, well, we're not sure. You see, churches rise and fall, and it's understanding the truthfulness of Scripture and the prophetic word that means that a church has a sound basis for its existence, So, in the midst of this discussion of the glorious promise of Christ's return and the promise that false teachers will come, we have these three verses which help us to understand what the scriptures are. I want us to see three things this morning regarding the scriptures the Bible, the Word of God. The first is this the scripture is God's Word to be received. The scripture is God's Word to be received. Now, in this text, we are talking about the prophetic word of Christ's return. But Peter broadens that out, doesn't he, in verse 20 and 21. He says, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy, the word of God, never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So he he broadens it out from just the promise of Christ's return to all of the prophetic word, all of Scripture. So the Scripture is God's word, number one, to be received. Now notice he uses that word confirmed, verse 19. We have the prophetic word confirmed. And of course, as we saw just a moment ago, this is connected to the previous verses regarding how the promises of the prophets of old, the first two-thirds of the Bible, the Old Testament, the promises that Christ was going to come it's been confirmed. There are eyewitnesses to it. Christ performed miracles in their midst to show that the time had come upon them. But just think of the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, what do we see? God, the living God, saying to the face of Satan, he's coming. He's coming. The seed of the woman is coming and he will crush your head, Satan. Doesn't take very long, does it? For God to give creatures a promise there after the flood, the wiping out of almost all of humanity, a kind of remaking of cursed and fallen creation. God gives a promise. The earth will not be destroyed. Seasons will continue. You may read that and you may think to yourself, this is interesting God promises never for there to be a worldwide flood again, but there's more to it than that. You see, God is preserving this earth. Time will continue until the seed of the woman comes. God takes a man out of a desert. He says, Through you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. It's going to be in your seed, Abraham, that this one is going to come. And so the Hebrews of old become a people called to remain distinct, not because God is a racist, but because Christ is going to come from this people. Think how many promises they're given. They're given sacrifices, aren't they? Pictures of the need for blood to be shed for sin. Priests who will enter into the holy place where God makes his presence known. Make sacrifice. His people may have special dwelling with their God. He gives them kings. He says to David, Second Samuel, it's going to be from your family, David, that this eternal king is going to come. He tells prophets like Zechariah, Zephaniah, and Micah. Here's where he's going to be born. Here's the kind of picture you're going to see. He's going to come riding on a donkey. He tells prophets like Isaiah that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way and yet there is one on whom the Lord will lay the iniquity of us all. Peter has all this in view when he says the prophetic word of his coming The promises of Christ have been confirmed. Puritan Matthew Poole says that the Old Testament prophecies are now confirmed either in the previous text with the voice from heaven that Peter and James and John heard or the witness of the apostles who saw the transfiguration. Commentators of one of the first English translations of the Bible, the Geneva Bible, wrote these words in their notes in the margins. Quote, the doctrine of the apostles doth not shut out the doctrine of the prophets, for they confirm each other by each other's testimonies. But the prophets were as candles which gave light unto the blind until the brightness of the gospel began to shine. Peter is saying the scripture is God's word to be received, and it's a word that's been confirmed. Promise after promise of the first coming of the Messiah have taken place. And Peter can pick up pen, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and can say, I have seen his glory. But notice, the scripture is God's word to be received, but Peter says this, which you would do well to heed. The Greek word underlying that word heed could be translated, which you would do well to receive. It would do well for you to receive the word of God. It would be good for you to receive the Scriptures as the prophetic word of God. The Scriptures of the Old Testament are confirmed by persons and events in the new. And so we ought to receive them and read them in faith. The Scripture is God's word to be received. That's the first thing that the Bible is. It's God's word to be received. So when you take up your Bible in your hands, you ought to remember that this is God's voice for me to receive, to heed, to hear, to grow from, to base my life upon. When you hear God's word preached, you ought to say not, will this sermon move me emotionally? You ought to say, how is God speaking to me through this fallible mouthpiece of a man? As his word comes to me. The scripture is God's word to be received and how we think about preparing for it. You know, we usher into worship so carelessly sometimes. But if you consider to yourself throughout the week past that if the Lord give you heartbeat and breath that today at about 11 o'clock God would speak to you through his word. That he has a word for you. Living and active word sharper than any two-edged sword that you ought to receive it, believe it in faith, and to understand that this prophetic word is a word that you ought to heed. Well, that's the first thing that the Bible is. The first thing is the Bible is the Scripture is God's word to be received. But secondly, Peter reminds us, he teaches us that the Scripture brings light. The Scripture brings light. Look at what he says there. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed or receive as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The second thing we learn about the scripture is that it brings light. Notice the connection. You have to do this sometimes, particularly when you read New Testament letters. All of God's word ought to be mind word for word. But when you read New Testament letters, the phrases sometimes go together. They are written in that way so that you follow thought after thought. Notice what Peter says. We have the prophetic word confirmed, which you would do well to heed. And then he tells us how to heed it. As a light that shines in a dark place. That's how you heed the scriptures. You heed it, you receive it as something that brings light. This is the way that we are to receive the word. A couple of passages of scripture. You can turn there if you like or just jot these down but Psalm 119 verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6 and verse 23, the word of God there says this, for the commandment is a lamp and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. You see, theologians talk about how God has given people revelation of himself in two ways. He's given revelation of himself in creation. Romans chapter 1. Think of the psalmist when he cries out, the heavens declare the glory of God. Boys and girls, at night, if you're in your bedroom and you're looking out the window or you're outside or maybe you're on a camp out with friends or family and you look up and you see the stars, you think that most of those stars, scientists tell us, are bigger than the entire earth. Those stars teach you something about God. God reveals that He's glorious through those stars. See, God reveals Himself generally to everyone in what He's made. Theologians call this general revelation. But God has also revealed Himself secondly in special revelation. Special revelation. The Scriptures. The coming of Christ to walk among us. The miracles that he and others performed. This is special revelation. And we need both. But it's the scripture that brings saving light. You see, there are many in our world today who in their own strength might look up at the sky and they may say, there, there, there must be a God. And God must be powerful. But they will never find King Jesus by looking up at the stars. They need The very voice of Christ in the scriptures, specially revealed to them. That is where the light of saving grace is found for lost sinners. Scripture brings light. Now, what does Peter mean when he says that it brings light, as a light that shines in a dark place? Well, in the context, it's all scripture, Yes, but here, particularly the word of Christ's second coming. That word is a light that shines in the darkness of our hearts, of this world. But notice what he says. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. There are potentially many ways you could interpret this phrase. I want to encourage you to consider two with me this morning. What does the phrase mean? Receive the scripture as a light, receive the prophetic word as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Well, the first option for us to consider is that, as is just about always the case, when, quote, the day is spoken of in the New Testament, it means the second coming of Christ. It's almost always the case in the New Testament. But Peter may be borrowing an allusion from the Old Testament book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 24, you can turn there or just listen as I read it. Listen to what's written there. Do you remember Balaam? The prophetic word way back in Numbers. Numbers 24 and verse 17, we read this I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob scepter shall rise out of Israel. A word wherein the Messiah is referred to as a star. Maybe Peter has that in the back of his mind. Of course, John writes in Revelation 22:16 that Jesus is the what? The bright morning star. So could it be that what Peter has in mind is that the scriptures will be a light to you until the day of Christ's return comes? And the bright morning star is right in your face. And you need no longer the revelation to be received by faith. For he is with you face to face. That you read of his face in the pages of his word until you are with him face to face. So in that sense, Peter is saying, until the day dawns, the day of Christ's return, and the morning star rises in your hearts. One scholar with the last name of Colley says this in essence, and I'm summarizing his words the knowledge of God that shines upon our hearts in conversion, Second Corinthians 4, 6. You remember that conversion is described there as light from the face of Christ. The knowledge of God that shines upon our hearts in conversion reaches its climax at the second coming. So when Peter says until, he may very well mean that once Christ comes, we will see face to face We will no longer be walking the walk of sightless faith in a promised word. Faith will become sight. And of course, other biblical writings point to this. Boys and girls, do you remember what Revelation 21 says will be the light of the new heaven and the new earth? Revelation 21, verse 23 says that Christ will be the light. There will be no need for sun to light the path. Christ will be the light. So, in this understanding, Scripture, the prophetic word, is our light until the day comes when the flaming light of Christ's return will capture our eyes. If that's what Peter means, then we look to the prophetic word, we look to the promise of his return and to all of the Scriptures. And therein we look for his face, for his fingerprints, for his ways until that great day when we see him face to face. But there's possibly another way to interpret what Peter means here when he says, Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, some of the older commentators, men like Matthew Poole, Matthew Henry, John Calvin, seem to have in view that when morning star rises in your hearts, that this is, in essence, the coming of Christ in the New Testament time, which offers light that was only very dim in the Old Testament time. And of course, that too would be in keeping with what Peter is saying, isn't he? We have the prophetic word of Christ's coming confirmed. There was a light. It was a dim one. It was there, it was sufficient, but it wasn't the full light of Christ until he came. And once he came, that morning star has risen in our hearts. By his light, we understand fully the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the faith. So whichever way you take it, Peter is saying that Christ, Christ, that morning star, is ultimately the aim of Scripture and the day of His coming. That promised day will bring everlasting light. So what is the Bible then? Well, Peter says next, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture. You see, he brings in the entirety of the Scripture. No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In these three verses, Peter Peter teaches us that the Scripture is God's word to be received. It's a word that brings light. But thirdly, Peter would have us to see that the Scripture is inspired. The Scripture is inspired. This would be in comparison to the word that the false teachers that we'll look at over the next few weeks will offer. They will offer many words, many religious sounding words, many moral sounding words, but they will not be offering you the spirit inspired word of God, Peter will say. The third thing that we need to understand about our Bibles, about the scripture is that they are inspired. Look at verse 21. We see the positive aspect Verse 21, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but by holy men of God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Notice the origin of Scripture. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Now maybe you're new to the things of Christianity. There is one God. Creation declares who He is. But Scripture, special revelation, helps us to understand that this one God exists eternally, as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. the Father sent the Son, and the Father and the Son breathe out the spirit, and it is this spirit that has inspired the prophets of old and the apostles of the New Testament period to write the word of God. The origin of the scripture is the Holy Spirit. But notice Peter also says in verse 20, what the origin is not. Look there, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation or private origin. Peter needs to say this, doesn't he? Because he's just said that people will say that we are following cunningly devised myths. That we're lost in these silly stories of men. Peter wants us to understand that the words of Scripture are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Neither the prophets of the Old Testament nor the apostles in Peter's day were simply giving their private interpretations. The words of the New Testament are not simply Peter's opinions and James and John's opinions. See, we can receive the word because it is not simply the opinion of the prophets nor is it the opinion of the apostles. Rather, it is the word of the Holy Spirit. So how does this work? I understand maybe you're thinking the Bible is God's word to be received. Okay, I I understand that if and as it's true, it brings light. But men did actually write down on papyrus and other kinds of paper words that their mind thought. How does this work? For you, this day, preacher, are saying that the Scripture is inspired. Well, let me take you to what our confession of faith says in several instances regarding the Scriptures. The very first paragraph of our church's statement of faith says this, Quote, "...it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners or ways to reveal Himself and to declare that His will unto His church... And afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh, the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same, his will, unto writing. The very first paragraph of our church's entire lengthy statement of faith says that God has committed Words of his will and his ways to holy writing. Writing that is for us. A couple paragraphs later, chapter 1, paragraph 4, we read this. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly, completely upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. See, the scripture is the word of God. But theologians down through the ages have helpfully given some terms for us to consider this. Some will use the term, the verbal plenary inspiration of scripture. They will talk about how, as Peter says in verse 21, that these men down through the ages, the prophets and the apostles, They spoke and wrote down things as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. That they themselves, Peter, Paul, Moses, Micah, Isaiah, that they wrote down with pen or quill the very things that they wanted to write. That they were thinking and yes, their own styles But that behind it all, the Holy Spirit was superintending the process so that what they wrote was exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted them to write. So yes, you might read John's writing. You might say, it seems that John is interested in this. You flip over and you read Luke. It seems that Luke is interested in this. Some scholars help us to see that there are different themes with which people write, different styles with which they write. Sometimes they write in songs, don't they? We have a whole book of songs of praise to God. It's called the book of Psalms. Others write stories like Genesis or Matthew. Others write letters. They're writing in their own time and in their own ways. And yet, the scripture would have us to see that through it all, songs, stories, letters, it is the Holy Spirit's words that we are receiving. So some people talk about how the Scriptures have two authors, chosen men of God set aside for that purpose. They're the human authors, but the Holy Spirit of God. So the Scripture is inspired, and that means that as we close, there are a couple of implications we need to consider because the Scripture is inspired. Here's one. Because its author is perfect, the Holy Spirit, it is perfect. Away with the liberal scholarship that would say that the scriptures have errors. A lot of times, all you need to do when you're sitting with someone and they say to you that the scriptures contradict themselves, just ask them, Would you mind giving me an example? Not all of the time, but most of the time, they're just parroting what they've heard elsewhere. They can't actually tell you because they don't really know the scriptures. They've just heard somewhere in their unbelief that the scriptures contradict themselves. So I, I often ask, please just tell me, help me understand. I want to talk with you. Where do the scriptures contradict themselves? Well, well, you know, I mean there's there are things, you know Occasionally you will get someone who has the appearance of wisdom and knowledge, who will point out certain things. But brothers and sisters, I would submit to you with prayerful consideration. The Scriptures are a united whole and they are perfect. And those supposed contradictions are found to not be contradictions at all. So maybe you're here and you think the Scripture is contradictory. Listen, friend, find where it's contradictory because your eternal destiny may very well rest on that claim. Where is it? You believe that it's contradictory? It contradicts itself? It says one thing here, one thing elsewhere? Where is it contradictory? I'd love to have that conversation with you. But because the scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's perfect. It doesn't contradict itself. Listen, if I write a book, it will probably contradict itself. It will probably be very imperfect. But not so with our God. You know, sometimes I like to think of it this way. If God is holy and perfect and can fashion the world by the very word of his power, certainly he can write a book. Because its author is perfect, it is perfect. But secondly, because the word of God is the voice of God, we are, as we said earlier, to receive it. We receive what the word says. We receive the meaning that the Holy Spirit has. We don't make it. Maybe you're here and you studied literature in high school or college. And you were taught, because you lived after the Enlightenment, you were taught that what we do is we read literature and we look at it and we say, this is what this means to me. And so you move into postmodern times, and I don't mean to step on anyone's toes, but you move from the room where in the 1600s, Rembrandt has painted this beautiful painting and it's very clear what he means to convey. You walk into the postmodern room and someone has taken a canvas and just splattered paint all over it. No offense, but are we to call that artwork? But we are to stand there and we are to look at that paint splattering and interpret what it means to us. Oh, he must have been very angry. She must have been very sad. Look at the tones, and some of you art folks can help us here, but that's the way that the last 300 years has been Drilled into our minds. We stand above any source or any document and we say what it means to us. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures are for us to receive. When we read the Bible, we ought not say, What does this mean to me? We ought to say, What did this mean in the mind of the Holy Spirit to convey to me? When we gather together with our friends, small groups, Bible studies, discipleship settings. It can be a dangerous thing for us to say, well, this is what it means to me. Well, this is the word of God. It means what it means, you see. But because the spirit is, the scripture is inspired by the spirit, we also are given a definition of prophecy. Look at verse 21 closely. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is why we need to consider carefully what we mean when we say someone has prophecy or has been given a prophetic word. The scripture itself tells us what prophecy is. This individual is being given the word of God to convey So what are our Bibles, boys and girls? This collection of multiple books over many hundreds of years, thousands really. Well, the Bible is God's word to be received. It's God's word that brings light. And it is the very inspired word of God. Now this could very well be an academic exercise. I've given us some terms to consider. I've given us some things to be reminded of regarding the Scripture. And we could close our Bibles here and say, well, that was informative. But why? Why does Peter want us to understand what the Word of God is? Specifically because in the middle of his entire argument, he's making known to us that the Scriptures point us to Jesus. Jesus and his way, his work, his coming, his saving power, it's all revealed there for us. Listen, friend, this discussion of the Scripture is not about what a bunch of Christians have believed down through the ages only. It's about life and death. God has spoken to the world through the words of his prophets and apostles who were given his words, and they were given it to write it down that throughout the ages... Copies would be made and disseminated all over the world so that people would hear things like For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is important because Scripture is the place where we hear precious words like this There is therefore now no condemnation, no doom, no judgment. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Scriptures are important and what they are are very important. They're about life and death because in the scriptures we read things like this. The wages of sin is death. Listen, you're a sinner and the payment you receive for that sin is death. But the verse continues. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life, where? In Christ Jesus. You need this prophetic word because this prophetic word preaches Christ to you. It says to you that you're a sinner, that you are lost, that you are without hope. Your works will never attain righteousness. Resting in yourself and your own record will never attain righteousness. God says to you that you're not righteous, Romans 3.10. It's not my word, it's his word. The Holy Spirit, through the pen of Paul, says no human being is righteous except the Lord Jesus Christ. But he also says to us in this prophetic word that those who come to Christ will be saved. They'll have their sins washed away. The judgment that is due them for breaking God's holy law has been absorbed in the body of Christ that he, according to the scriptures, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Lost person, non-Christian, unbeliever, you need this prophetic word. For life is found within its pages. But you know who else needs this word? The very Christians that Peter writes to. Then and now, you need this prophetic word. In the middle of the night, when your soul is restless you recall because of satan's voice or your own memory you recall all of the wasted egypt years of your life you recall all of the sins and it's as if your face is blushing as you lay awake at night at 4 in the morning in your bed and you think to yourself i had been such a wicked person and then the living god brings what to your mind the scriptures you need this word it's important what this word is because at four in the morning when you have no hope, you need your mind to be recalling the truth of Scripture. Scriptures like this, you were dead in the trespasses in which you walked, following the counsel and the ways of this world, following Satan, the prince of the power of the air. And then you need the word of Ephesians 2 for it. Four in the morning when you are restless and feeling more guilty than you felt before. But God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you made you alive together with who? Who? Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, a theological discussion about what the scripture is, how it was inspired. It's important just because we want to get our facts straight, but it's important because it's about life and death. God gives his scriptures to any who will hear. We have not followed cunningly devised myths, Peter would say. We've been carried along by the Holy Spirit who's inspired his words, words which preach Christ to us. You need that word preached to you on Sunday morning. You need that word to come to mind in the middle of the week. You need that word to be read to you and sung to you on your deathbed. It's an inspired word, a word to be received, and it's a word, listen, it's a word that will bring light. When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and they've told you you've got a month to live, what will you cling to? I am persuaded that neither, what, death nor life nor anything in all of creation will what as I lay here with one month left to live, will separate me from the love of God. And who? To whom does the scripture testify? The love of God in Christ Jesus. You don't need the word of men. You need the spirit-inspired word of God. Let's pray. Living God, we pray that upon being reminded of what our Bibles are, that the truth that they bring to us, the life giving truth that they reveal to us as they show us the face of Christ in all of their pages, that this reminder would help us. And we may remember that you have not only revealed yourself to us in what you have made, but you have specially moved men of old with your very words that with pen and hand they may write down your word, that it may be inscripturated for us, that it may be read and meditated upon and preached down through the ages, that men and women and boys and girls would hear of Christ through their pages. We pray that you would help us. Enliven us by your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.